a listener production. Hi, and welcome to Broadsheet Melbourne Around Town. I'm Broadsheet's Editorial Director, Katja Vaktel, and the host of this guide to Melbourne. For 16 years, Joseph Aboud, Brunswick East restaurant roomie, has been one of the city's most beloved eateries. Joseph spent many years working in some of Melbourne's top fine diners before he opened Rumi in 2006, and it's basically been busy ever since. People love his Lebanese and Middle Eastern dishes, which are inspired by his own Lebanese heritage, but also nod to Turkish and Persian cuisine. This year is a really, really big one for Joseph and his wife and business partner, Natalie. Not only is Rumi moving to a new home, After some time, he's also just released his first cookbook and he's with us in the studio today. Welcome, Joseph. Thanks for that beautiful intro. (laughs) Your new book is called Rumi, Food of Middle Eastern Appearance. Yes. There's a story behind this name. Yeah, of course. It's of Middle Eastern appearance was always a a term used to, what's the term, to sort of tar people who had, you know, got themselves into trouble and happened to look Middle Eastern. So... Mm. You know, it's one of those things that became a bit of a a negative term, but I think it's a great way to describe things that are of Middle Eastern appearance. So we thought we'd take take it back. You talk about in the book that, you know, after 9-11 in particular, that phrase of Middle Eastern appearance, as you said, was used in a way that was pejorative and watching that, you know, hearing that on the news, it was was not being used in a way that was celebratory. Yeah, and I think the, the most important thing about that is you don't turn on the news and hear a guy of white Anglo appearance or a guy of, but for some reason, mm. of Middle Eastern appearance was something that people felt the need to to keep on repeating, you know, as if there was a predetermined perception of what those people were like. Now, you almost use it or you'd considered using it with a bar that you opened a few years ago yeah. with Bar Saracen, yeah, but it didn't right. quite make it. So. Yes. But now you are ready to kind of bring it out to the world. Yeah, well, the Saracen Saracens are, is another interesting sort of pejorative of, you know, the way the Crusades saw the Arabs. And right. so it was uh, the Saracens were a, a negative term for, not not necessarily negative, but definitely not a not a charming term for, for Middle Easterners, you know. How does then that encapsulate what's in this cookbook? The food is of Middle Eastern appearance. It's not specifically Lebanese or it's not specifically Turkish or Persian. But, you know, growing up in Australia, I saw, rather than the differences between the cuisines and the cultures, a thread of similarity. And, you know, the name Rumi also represents that. You know, Rumi was born in Balkh in in Afghanistan. Rumi was a poet. Rumi was a poet philosopher, yeah, from about 800 years ago now. You know, Islamic mystic. Uh, he was the first of the whirling dervishes, and if you're not familiar with that, it's a, it's a sort of meditative dance of, you know, a bit of a prayer and a dance at the same time where they whirl and go into some, some sort of trance. Rumi started off there in Afghanistan. He wrote in Persian. He sort of settled and died in Turkey, and it sort of represented that borderless Middle East, and, you know, the, the world was generally borderless up until very recently. So that's where that, that idea came from, and, you know, we just found that the best way to describe things were of Middle Eastern appearance because they weren't of a specific um, a specific country. You said in the book that cooking doesn't come naturally to you. No. What, what does that mean? Because you are yeah. a very successful cook yeah. with a restaurant that has been running and, as I mentioned, filled with people and in pretty intense loyalists for some yeah. time. I'm a trained cook. So I never cooked when I was younger. 
it wasn't a passion of mine. I didn't like school. I got a job washing dishes. I fell in love with the kitchen as much as cooking. The vibe of working in a kitchen, I think, is one of the most wonderful workplaces you can be in. There's a lot of negative and a lot of thought about hospitality, about how hard it is and how terrible it can be in the conditions. But I think what I've come to understand about working in a kitchen is that one of the few jobs that gives you joy. And there's lots of jobs that you can do and get satisfaction or whatever. But there's been times in the kitchen where I've thought, man, this is joyful. We are, we are experiencing joy. And sure, you have some pretty rough times. But so, so the idea of the kitchen really caught me very quickly. And then the idea of cooking was something that I really, really had to learn. So, you know, my parents had a fish and chip shop growing up. I'm the only kid that didn't work in the shop because... I couldn't handle the utensils, you know, I didn't, <laughs> couldn't squash the burgers properly, <laughs> but I do love the process. So if you say, can you cook me this? I'll get very nervous and sweaty and, you know, and I have to do it a couple of times to get, to get it right. Yeah. So in the book, you'll find lots of hints and tips because it's as if I'm talking to myself, trying to calm myself down. <laughs> but I love a cookbook where you can open it up and not feel intimidated. There are so many recipes in your book that do feel accessible. You've described the food in the restaurant and also in the book as, you know, really simple. Like people aren't going to be surprised by learning that this dish has actually 17 ingredients and takes, you know, I don't know, 18 hours to make. The idea is for it to be food that you can go to easily and quickly and regularly. And that, that's exactly how it's been written. And it's probably a little bit odd to, you know, we opened in 2006, so it's been a long time to be writing a cookbook now after all this time. And I'm somewhat glad because I think if I had done it when I was a bit younger, I'd be, it would be a little bit more about my own ego and trying to impress other chefs and trying to impress people. Whereas it's, this book is purely written for the reader, for people to enjoy cooking and to, to use it. It's a soft cover. The paper is not shiny. It's a matte finish. The idea is that you write on it, you make it your own, you dirty it. Mm. You might want to buy a second copy for the shelf, you know. <laughs> but it's, it you know, it's an accessible price. The idea is that you, that it's a book to to use, not to to worship or to adore. So what right? are some of the recipes in there and, and where have they come from? Are they all dishes you've cooked over the years at Rumi or are these things that also have filtered into your headspace through your travels or through childhood? Uh, almost all of it is for, had been has been on at Rumi at one stage or another. Um, a couple of things are just small ideas that you know pop. Like for example, there's a, a little Turkish delight biscuit that um, is an is an idea that my sister in law sort of brought to the family, and it's pretty common in, in in Lebanon, and I find out in Turkey as well. All it is is a couple of Mari biscuits, so you know, very simple biscuits with a Turkish delight squashed in in between, mm. and it's in there. I say that it's not a recipe because it isn't a recipe. It's it's just an idea. So some things like that are just ideas that we that are just around in the family or whatever. But almost everything else is has been on the menu one time or another. Which recipes are in the book that are the ones that you can't take off the menu at Rumi because you'd be ah uh, yeah absolutely yeah, which is you know a bit of a curse you know like because you you want to do other things but like there's only one cauliflower dish that we can ever do which is our cauliflower that we always joke about that it's you know people every once in a while say that it's burnt. That was an interesting learning transitioning from cooking European food Mm. to then starting Rumi. And there was no other Rumi, right? So you couldn't learn from the other Rumi or you couldn't start somewhere. No. When you you opened it, you talk about the fact in the book that there is, Melbourne was still very much a fine dining city as opposed to, so as you said, you'd worked at 
some of the top restaurants in the city with the chefs who were defining dining at that time. So it was, you know, you were, you did work with Jacques Raymond, you were at SSS and Ondine with Donovan Cook and Philippa Sibley, you know, Circa with Michael Amby. These names and these restaurants were Melbourne institutions. But as you said, to do the cooking that you were thinking about or the food, you couldn't train it. There was no other room. That's right. You just had to do it first. Yeah. You were one of the first to be doing share plates, really, yeah, in a yeah. big way in Melbourne. <laughs> we had a few fights with customers in the early days and, you know, one woman stormed out and said, you guys won't last long around here. And I thought, despite what you think, what a horrible thing to say to a young couple that have just opened a restaurant, you know. Mm. But that, that's the level of, you know, we used to have to say to every table, you know, uh, you don't order your own dish, we put it down. And, you know, we ended up starting to refer to Chinese restaurants. Let's just imagine you're in a Chinese restaurant and you won't get, espresso coffee here, you know, yeah. just like you don't get it in a Chinese restaurant. So that was sort of how we, we, we had to come up with ways to try and ease people's concerns about, you know, will they miss out or will it, you know. That cauliflower you discussed yeah. was one of the dishes early on that people thought, oh, no, I think this is overcooked. Or yeah. yeah. So, so like, no, 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 this is, this is the way it's meant to be. That's right. And, you know, so going back to the idea of transitioning from European cooking to then, then running, running roomy and learning on, as part of the process. Uh, you know, you'd put it in the, you'd flour it, put it in the fryer. You know, mum would make fried cauliflower, not necessarily that combination, but fried cauliflower. And you'd taste it and beautiful golden brown Donovan and Philippa would be very happy about the <laughs> colour on that. But, and it just didn't, just didn't taste right. I'm like, all right, darker, darker, darker. Because what happens with a lot, lot of vegetables, when you fry them to that really dark, they take on a bit of sweet, you know, they become beautiful soft inside, bit crunchy on the outside. Mm. And and it wasn't until it was basically almost black that it hit that that flavor profile that we wanted, and that's the cauliflower dish. And you know, if I tried to take that off, and but people would people would go crazy. So the lamb recipe yeah. was one where you say there's no secrets here. Yeah, like, yeah, it is one of the most popular dishes on the menu. Yeah, but it's super simple. Yeah, totally. That's, that's a really strange one. A lot of people have a lot of trouble with that, and they're like, "How do you get it so soft?" And it's like. It's just time. It's just time. People just can't get their head around leaving something in the oven for so long, I think. You know, so just start it in the morning, leave it in there for a very long time on a very low heat. I'm not sure if I write it in there, but even when people ask me, I say, you know what, forget all the spices, even forget the salt. Just go and get a piece of lamb from the butcher, a shoulder, and just put it in the oven for a very long time. You'll find it will fall off the bone that's what you're looking for. Then you can start building on top of that. And, and you can th- add the roomy special. Then you can do all those things. Yeah. And I think there's a few recipes in the book where I talk about that. Just just start with something. And if you like what you're tasting, if you feel com- comfortable with it, then you can go and make your own dumplings. Mm. Uh, in- until then, buy them or put something else in there. You say very clearly, you know, a lot of the recipes in this book aren't heavily affected by a missing ingredient. Home cooks, yeah. like myself, where it can be intimidating. Yeah. Hearing or reading a sentence like that kind of just takes the stress out of it. Because you're like, yeah. okay, well, I don't have that ingredient in my cupboard, but the dish isn't going to fall apart because yeah. of it. So I think I'm talking to myself a lot in, in the book, right? Because I freak out when there's something not right or something missing. And I'm like, oh my God, what is, I can't do this, you know, especially at home. It's like, it's, you know, have a full melt. <laughs> I know that those things would stop me doing something. I say, oh, I, I can't do it. I don't have all spice. Well, yeah, doesn't ha- doesn't have to have all spice this time. Don't have the pomegranate yeah. seeds. Don't yeah. have yeah. I feel that if you made some of these dishes, the result will be quite different to what you used to, and I think you'll love it. And then you'd say, you know, next time I'm going to go and get that 
allspice or I'm going to go and get those particular nuts or whatever. Mm. I hope that's what people take take from the book. You said there's a bit of a mystique also sometimes around spices. Yeah. But you don't need to understand them too deeply to, yeah, yeah. to use them well. What are the three spices that you would always have in the pantry? Because they're yeah. easy to use and you can add them to a lot. Yeah. Uh, allspice is, is the one which is, um, I think, you know, the name says, says it itself. Allspice is actually just one spice, but it's it's got the name allspice because it tastes like all spices, right? So it's it's got a bit of sweetness of cinnamon, nutmeg, clove. It's all in that one spice. So Where does it originate? Do you know? Uh, Jamaica. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So apparently that when it's all in flower, that the the air in the areas where it grows is just that really beautiful fragrant. Such a great spice to have as a base. And coriander and cumin are those the other two that that you know just I find cumin is one of those spices where if I don't cook it properly enough, it can have a bitter taste. Like yeah. am, I, am I just not using it? Do I, am I uh, not maybe using, using it too much? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe using too much. Yeah, maybe it's pretty strong. To, yeah. Maybe I just need to hold. And especially if it's by itself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you know, this sort of comes back to that idea of uh, whether you understand it or not. I just, it would be the same as if you put heaps of garlic in something and it got too much. Just mm. try putting, try putting less. You You've know? got the tomb recipe in there, uh, yeah, of yeah. course, which is all yeah. about yeah. garlic. And I agree with you when you say, you know, if you don't like garlic, then you're, you're missing out. <laughs> yeah. There are also other recipes in there that are named for the very, like the incredible people who came to the restaurant and yeah. ate them. So you've got a recipe in there that Rene Redzepi yeah, yeah. ate and loved. Yeah. You've got a recipe in there that Anthony Bourdain yeah. ate and loved. Yeah, that was a bit uh, capitalist of me actually and just thought I'd <laughs> squeeze but those ones. But they've, they've had an impact because of that. Like the quail is still on it at Rumi and, you know, we had a guy last night who, you know, he, he's been in a couple of times. He orders one surf to have there, one surf to take away. And, you know, I said to him, oh, there's a book coming out. So he's like, oh, it's all right. I've already ordered it. I said, well, the recipe's in there, you know. So Which was um, it, Anthony or Anthony Renee? Anthony yeah, yeah. 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 So that, that, that was the quail. And um, he actually he actually came in with Matt Preston. This was, you know, very, very early days. And uh, they filmed No Reservations. And it was so flattering that, you know, the guy eats a lot of things, right? And it, he was particularly impressed by that. And People still come in now because they see episodes of No Reservations. Well, it's They're still like, playing. We want the, we want the quail. And <laughs> didn't Ben Shuri tell Rene Redzepi he had to go? Y- yeah, to yeah, yeah. And was it the livers? The livers, yeah. So I didn't know that his background is Albanian, but we just cooked these things called Albanian livers, which come from Turkey. So another one of those convoluted names. But And normally it's done with lamb, but we just did them with chicken and so um, chicken livers. And, yeah, it's just the sumac onions and livers and garlic and... Yeah, yeah I've got, that's probably the first recipe I make. I love yeah. livers. Okay, let's get to the restaurant because I'm not sure how you're releasing a book, written the book, and her, uh, are moving restaurants in the same year. Not how, sure if you heard that sigh. How, yeah, yeah. How are you feeling? <laughs> uh, really, really stressed and excited. It's it's a real. I've said it a few times. If we were to open what we opened then now, we would be not taken very seriously. The The standards have climbed in terms of fit outs and mm. expectations of a restaurant so high, it's it's getting really intense, right? It's getting really full on. And it's it's harder and harder for, you know, a young couple to just open up a, you know, I think that's where this idea of the wine bar is coming from now. I think it's filling that gap of, okay, we're not, we're not a restaurant, mm. so we don't have to provide what, a, what you are now expecting from a restaurant. This is somewhere much more casual, you know, so hopefully that allows young people to get in the game 
and not have to, you know, invest so so much mm. of their life into it. So, and when um, you opened in Brunswick East, of course, now Brunswick East is such a hotbed yeah. for Melbourne's cooking talent, and you know, yeah. the, turn up on Ligon Street or kind of anywhere, you'll probably be within two hundred meters of a yeah. pretty good restaurant or wine bar. But when you opened, there was nothing. No. We were the first and the only sort of new new restaurant that that had come onto the into the area, and um, so we were booked solid. And people would say, "Oh, where else can we go?" And you had to go back to Carlton or Fitzroy or Collingwood. Yeah. There was just no nowhere else you could you could go. Actually, I remember you know we used to have people come from across town and whatever. And I, I think one of the funniest things I ever heard was. Some people, I'm not sure where they had come from, but uh, you know, towards the end of the night, they were leaving and. The woman says to the man, "Ah, uh, oh, look, darling, they even ride bicycles." <laughs> <laughs> so it was a bit of an adventure for people to come to Brunswick as well, right? So, um, and then Hellenic Republic opened up up the road, and things really started moving. The Alderman opened next door, which created a great synergy on that on that corner now, mm. where uh, Baridur is and Old Palm Liquor and Bahama Gold across the road. And, and you were in the original space you opened is now Bar. Barid, yeah, that's so, right. And then yeah, you yeah. moved. So this is your second location. Yeah, yeah. So this is Roomy, Roomy 3. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, okay. So tell us about Roomy 3. Our um, landlords were de- were going to develop the the site. That's a big site there. So we, we've known for a long time. We haven't had a lease for about three years. So we've been looking f- mm. for years. And then um, we spoke to the guys from Banco that are doing the development at East Brunswick Village where... Um, Bridge Road has just opened their brewery. Yeah, Bridge. We talked and, about that on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's it's a great it's a great site, and uh, I think they're just about to start brewing some stuff in in house there as well. That's Those a, who live in in Brunswick East and Brunswick have said it's a great development. It's interesting that you say that because you know a lot of people have a problem with development. Yes, the and, word itself. Yeah, and this development, even while it was a you know half of it was a massive construction site, it still felt. Good and mm. it really is kudos to these great developers, Banco, which basically without them doing what they are prepared to do for their tenants, we could never afford and be able to do what what we're doing. Mm. But they are so committed to making that development work for everyone that um, it was just a great a great opportunity. And we'd spoken to so many developers that approach you and say we can do this and we can do that, and they never actually really put their money where their mouth is. And and Banco did that, and being part of it's funny because I feel like we sort of started a village on Ligon Street and we're starting another mm, village where yeah. we are. And, and I think, I don't know if you've heard FOMO cinemas have just... The, the cinema they're, sounds they're, awesome. Yeah. So that's just across the road from us. And so we just thought, you know, out of out of all the places we could move to, this seems like a really, really good opportunity to to go again. Is it right? much bigger? So, so the restaurant's the same size, okay. maybe even a touch smaller, the actual restaurant. But the exciting part to it is that there's a, an, a, an event space attached to it. Uh, we get a lot of inquiries for events and we can't necessarily do them. Either mm. the space doesn't work properly or we're open and we have to close or various other things. So we've always been looking for somewhere that had an event space because I think uh, being a restaurant of our age, you have to diversify, right? You can't just yeah. expect people to just keep on coming forever and ever. So, you know, having other ways of, of getting revenue. So you have a quiet winter, you can do a couple of functions. Exactly, yeah. So we thought if we're ever going to reinvest in this, it, it has to be a little bit more diverse than what we have now. So the function space is really great. It opens up into the restaurant so you can do larger functions. Um, so there'll be about an 80-seat 
function space there. It's a beautiful private dining room with its own entrance to the street. Did you have a private dining room at Roomy It's two? sort of semi-private now, okay. but this, you know, uh, like I said, it's got its own. We, we once had, uh, fairly recently actually, Van, Vance Joy, you know, booked out yep. the front and, and his management were concerned that people would come up and approach him. So there's no concern of that now because they'll have their own we'll entrance and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, and then the, the other exciting part, details haven't been finalised, so I can't say too much about it, is we're opening an all-day bar. So so it's another part of the restaurant. So it's actually nothing to do People with... People can't see room. my face, but I'm very, I'm getting very excited about, yeah, about so, this little detail. So, so we thought, you know, the cinema's going to be there and uh, we want to have a presence on the street all, da- all day long. Mm. So Why? Because does Rumi open later? Yeah, so Rumi only opens for dinner. Yeah. And you used to do breakfast, but you oh, decided yeah, that, yeah, that's, that, that's that ship another, sailed That's a while another ago. story, yes. Yeah. That's another story. Which, you know, I think what this does is gives us the opportunity to, to do those things again. So it's about 20 seats inside and then we've got all the footpath and what have you. Will it be part of the roomy space or it's a separate? No, it's completely separate space, oh, okay. yeah. So Also called roomy? What's it what's No, it called? I, I can't, I can't okay. confirm nor deny any of those questions. <laughs> okay, we're just so a little bit off finalising those details, even though we're like six weeks from opening. We, um, yeah, so we just haven't finalised exactly what we want that to be. But the idea is that it's open all day. I'm really... I just, I can already see the snack yep. menu. I'm and very that's what excited. It is. So it's, it's all about snacks and nothing that we do at Rumi will happen in the bar. So it'll be, because, you know, it comes down to that thing about, we're talking about the cauliflower earlier. We also want an outlet to do other things. Mm. And, you know, we really don't want anything to get stuck on that menu. So we want to be able to just constantly rotate and do things that are interesting enough to us as chefs and, and just to keep things, keep things fresh and moving. And the idea is something along the lines of, you know, um, some Lebanese sandwiches during the day and then, you know, a bowl of hummus and some falafel or something and then going okay, into stop, snacks. Okay, stop because I'm just, <laughs> um, I'm really hungry. We're approaching lunchtime. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, yeah, so that's the, that's the idea. And something easy that you can just drop into and have a glass of wine, mm. you know, and a bit more booze focused. Um, so, and we thought Rumi might be a little bit, um, sort of people might not feel comfortable just drop in and have a glass of wine in the afternoon on the way to a movie or mm. after a movie or whatever. So we thought this space really, really works works well for that. It's a really interesting evolution and, and yep. quite a big one. It's not like you're just moving spaces. You, yeah. You're, you're actually going to be, it's the next chapter, you've got a private dining room, as yep. you said, events. So yep. it gives you and Natalie, I guess, more on your plate. Yeah. But a bit more creative outlet. For sure, which is, again, going back to that thing of uh, being at our age both, as individuals and as a restaurant, you need to keep evolving. And we're sort of looking at it a bit like a big pub, mm. you know, a big big Middle Eastern pub where you've got the public bar and the restaurant and, and the ballroom, right? So it's been 16 years. I mean, you've yeah. been cooking for a long time before that. So this question I'm about to ask can really include any learnings. But as you sit here now, about to about to open a new restaurant, go down this new path, you've got a cookbook out. You know, what is, what is the big learning? What's the thing that you think, if I'd known that earlier or I'm so happy I know it now and I could share that with anyone that comes along after me? I think probably the most important thing I've learned is to focus and get good at what you're doing before you try and do other, try and do other things. And mm. I think, uh, as you mentioned before, we've had a few other sort of ventures that haven't quite succeeded and I think that's probably because we didn't have the right things in place at Rumi mm. but also that on the, on on the flip side is I think really appreciating what you have you know maybe I, I I think after COVID and you know we sort of 
consolidated and realized Rumi, um, you know, was so special to us. Mm. And, you know, like without getting caught up in that COVID time, like when, when uh, we were allowed to reopen, I remember just seeing the emails for bookings come in and I just burst into tears. I just could not believe that the first thing people would think of would be to come to come to Rumi. It was just so, so flattering. Mm. And that really, it's sad that, that, an, that external noise should influence what you feel about your own venue, but it really sort of confirmed for me that Rumi is really special. And I felt a little bit like a, you know, a philanderer that was out with every young floozy that was, you know, presenting themselves while the most beautiful woman was standing right next to me, which was Rumi, you know, mm. as well as Nat. And there was no philandering just for the record. But, you know, <laughs> but, you know it just felt like there was this, you know, I was looking for new things all the time yeah. when, you know, the beauty was 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 right there. And, and um, I think this new chapter allows me to... Uh, scratch some of those itches within the same within the same environment. So I have to ask, where are you loving eating right now that is not the beautiful Rumi? Yeah, right. Um, in Melbourne. I've been to Public Wine a couple of times and really enjoyed uh, the simplicity of that as well mm. and the accessibility of that. And there's no doubt that that, that provides some sort of inspiration for what we want to do uh, in our little bar. Um, They're good at that there. You know, I know there's a lot of wine bars around now and, you know, they've always, it's always, there's always this risk of it becoming, everyone does it, but they do a particularly good job of it. And I think there's a reason why these, these bars are popping up because you don't always want to have a full, a full meal. When does a new restaurant open? We're hoping by the end of November. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, until then, yep. Rumi Food of Middle Eastern Appearance is out on October 31 and it's available to pre-order now. Thank you so much for coming in to chat with us. Oh, what a pleasure. I feel really lucky that you invited me on. That's it for today. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell your friends and leave us a review. And to make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe or follow us wherever you're listening now. Listener.